Today I'm going to be preaching out of Genesis chapter 42, verses 1 through 38, from the ESV translation of the Bible. Uh, Last week, Pastor Ryan preached to us about the fulfillment of dreams uh, and about Joseph's rise to power. So far we have seen uh, a cupbearer's dreams fulfilled, a baker's dreams fulfilled, and even Pharaoh's dreams fulfilled. God has shown his faithfulness to his own revelation and to Joseph in Egypt. But the covenant people, the descendants of Abraham through Isaac and now Jacob, are a fractured people. They're a dysfunctional family, broken by years of favoritism, resentment, treachery, deceit, and even murderous hatred. There is little trust between Father Jacob and his sons. Jacob's favoritism of Benjamin, the the full brother of Joseph, remains a barrier of fatherly affection and blessing. And then there is a son, Joseph, who was sold secretly into slavery by his own brothers, and he's believed dead by his father and his dreams. Joseph's dreams are yet to be fulfilled. But the plans of God are not thwarted by the schemes of man. And broken families are not without hope of restoration because the Lord Lord God is sovereign, the Almighty. He is the faithful God who protects and provides for those whom he has chosen. And so let's stand and read together the first five verses of Genesis chapter 42, and and we'll we'll read the rest as we go. But uh, this is the word of the Lord. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Joseph, excuse me, but Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Let's pray. God, through your word, you show us your power to, to make happen what you, have, uh, what you have ordained. You've shown us your love and your concern and your care for your people. You've shown us the ability to, to reconcile broken relationships, broken families, and, and chiefly, oh Lord, you've shown us to how, how you've reconciled us to you, our, our heavenly Father. I pray now, Lord, just as Brian did earlier, that you would open our hearts and our ears and our eyes to your word, and, uh, and oh Holy Spirit, that you would bring life and light where there is death and darkness today. Uh, Lord, we pray this humbly in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Please be seated. So we, we begin this chapter with a return to, to Canaan. The last time we saw the family of Jacob, uh, it was in chapter 38, when uh, we saw the sordid story of Judah and his sons and his daughter-in-law, Tamar. It's been roughly 20 years since Genesis 37, when Joseph's brothers had sold him into slavery and deceived their father, Jacob, into thinking that his favorite Joseph had risen from slave to, to prisoner to now the second in command over all Egypt. 
Pharaoh's dream had come to fruition and a severe famine had spread over all the land. But because of the leadership of Joseph, Egypt had a surplus of grain from which they could sell to other nations. And so we find our our story beginning here. We can already see the family tension here in the opening of chapter 42. Jacob is short and sarcastic with his sons. There's no food in the land of Canaan, and he's a little hangry. The land was given to them by the God of their fathers. It was blessed of God, and they were told that they would be a fruitful people. They would multiply and fill the earth. But now there's a famine. Will the clan endure? Jacob sends his sons to go trade with Egypt so that they may live, it says, and not die. This is a dire situation. They are, they are hungry enough that Jacob sends his boys 200 miles away. We read this, that this is not strange to the, to the area. Uh, for all the earth came to Egypt to buy grain, which we read in chapter 41, verse 56. The sons of Israel came to buy among other Canaanite clans and tribes. Jacob needed to send all his sons because they would need enough uh, they would need to pro- procure enough food, uh, not just for themselves, but for the whole family of Jacob. And, and to do so for at least a few months, maybe even longer. Most of the sons, we know, have married and started families of their own. But in this patriarchal society, Jacob is still the head of the family. He's still the, he's still the boss man. And he has the right to send these, these sons of his on a mission for the, whole, for the whole clan. But Jacob only sends 10 sons. With Joseph gone, there were 11 sons remaining, but Benjamin, we're told, was not sent. Benjamin, the second son of, of Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel, is now the, the cherished son of the father. And Jacob will stop at nothing to make sure no harm befalls his precious baby boy. Now, in a group of ten, the eldest sons were likely safe from harm's way on this journey to Egypt. You don't mess with a group of ten, ten guys, especially gruff-looking ones like, like these boys were. But even in that safety in numbers, Jacob has doubts. He has, the desire, he has no desire to risk something happening to Benjamin. We already know about the, the jealousy um, that, uh, that the older brothers had toward one favored son of Jacob, Joseph. And it's very possible that Jacob had some suspicions about the disappearance uh, of, of Joseph all those years ago. So after 20 years, Jacob's family is still marked by favoritism and distrust. Let's continue the, the story. In verse 6, now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. 
We fast forward now several weeks to the land of Egypt. The journey from, from Canaan to Egypt would not have been overly treacherous, but a 200-mile journey, give or take, from Hebron to Egypt uh, through wild terrain with 10 men, their mules, and their carts uh, would have taken some time. Joseph was governing the land, and there were people groups from all over the known world coming to him for relief from this widespread famine. The fact that his brothers show up when and where Joseph himself is actively doing trade work in Egypt is already providential. But there they come, and there they bow down before him. Clearly, God's hand is actively at work setting up this meeting between the sons of Israel and Joseph, their estranged brother. It's, it's hard to imagine that Joseph met with each and every group coming to Egypt for aid. God is doing something here. He's fulfilling his word and the dreams that he's given. Now Joseph recognizes his brothers, but they don't recognize him. It's been 20 years. Joseph was still a teenager when they sold him to the Midianites. They were already older. They, they had the, the man look to them. They might have been easier for Joseph to recognize now, 20 years later. Joseph was a man now too. And, and while he had not fully embraced all of Egyptian culture, as Pastor Ryan pointed out last week, he did wear Egyptian clothing. And he spoke the Egyptian language and he sat in a seat of authority that his brothers could have never predicted for Joseph. They had no idea who they were dealing with at this point. Now it's also hard to imagine that Joseph could have been, or what he could have been thinking, as, as he saw his ten brothers who had treated him so hatefully all those years ago as they approached. Surely, as he had, uh, he had sold to other Canaanite clans, he must have considered the possibility of his father's family showing up for grain too, right? Had he thought through what he might say to them? I bet I would have. God had fulfilled the dreams of so many of the, the people around Joseph at that point. He had to believe that God would likewise fulfill his own childhood vision. We read about this vision in Genesis chapter 37, uh, where, where it says, it says, Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. This is Joseph speaking to his brothers. And behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. And then a few verses later we read, Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? Joseph remembered his dreams, it says. And now, ten sheaves, ten brothers, are bowing before him. Dream number one is fulfilled. But where's the sun? The moon. Where's the eleventh star? Where's where's father? Where's Leah? Where's Benjamin? 
Joseph decides to investigate. He needs to know more. So we pick up in verse 9. He says, and he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We're all sons of one man. We're honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, no, it is the nakedness of the land you've come to see. And they said, we, your servants, are 12 brothers, the, the sons of our father. And one is, or, whoop, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, it is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested, by the life of Pharaoh. You shall not go up from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. This is a fun story. Joseph accuses his brothers of being spies in order to get them talking about themselves. And talk they do. The way that the, the brothers' defense is set up in Hebrew is meant to give the impression that they're, they're very nervous at this point, which is understandable, right? Usually, you'll find a, a conjunction between sentences in, in, in ancient Hebrew storytelling. Uh, you can see it earlier in, in this chapter. And Joseph's brothers came... Right? And then it says, and Joseph's brothers, or Joseph recognized his brothers, and Joseph remembered his dreams. Right? That, that and accompanies the storytelling to keep it paced. But here, it's rapid fire, fast talking. No, we're here to buy food. We're sons of one man. We're honest men. We're not spies. They, they know they're, they're in deep doo-doo, as my, as, as my dad would say. But Joseph wants more details. And so he presses them further. He, he repeats his accusation, and the brothers take the bait, still talking fast. There are 12 of us. One's with our father and, uh, back in Canaan, and, and, uh, and one is no more. But can Joseph trust them? He's hearing what, he's, what they're saying, but are, are Jacob and Benjamin back in Canaan, or are they in the brothers' camp somewhere in Egypt? Did they bring Benjamin down here and sell him just like they had with him all those years ago? Joseph deepens the test. He'll put them in prison for a few days, telling them that one of the brothers can head back to camp and get the youngest brother, and then he'll believe that there's truth in them. But first, they're going to get a little taste of being in custody. The same language used to describe Joseph's time in prison is, uh, is here uh, used against the brothers. They're, they're, they're going to be put in custody. They're getting a little time in the clink, as we say. Little brother is going to show these boys what it's like to get Josephed for a few days. Uh, let's pick up in verse 18. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine uh, of your households and bring your youngest brother to me. So your words will be verified and you 
shall not die. And they did so. Joseph accused his brothers of being spies in, in order to get them talking. Oh, sorry, backtrack. After three days in the prison, Joseph is satisfied that Jacob and Benjamin are actually alive and are in Canaan. They aren't just back in the, the camp there at Egypt. So Joseph needs to devise a plan to get them there. They need to come to Egypt. But he can't just send one brother. There's a famine in the land. There are mouths to feed in Canaan. So he revises his original plan in such a way that he continues to test his brother's character. But he's also, uh, he's also merciful toward his family. And he, and he entices them to return. Joseph gives the, son of Israel, the sons of Israel one opportunity, he says, to live. He says, if you are honest men, one brother is to remain, and the rest of you can take the grain you've purchased and feed your people. Joseph fears God. He provides for his family, and he deals mercifully with his brothers. Leave one brother here in Egypt, they're told, and, and you can get him back if you prove your story to me by bringing this younger brother back here for me to see then no one has to die. The test has been set. And that should have been eerily similar. It should have felt eerily similar to a previous situation in which these, these men once found themselves. They'll have to leave a brother behind in a pit, in a prison, and go home to their father. They've, they've been here before. The, the real test for the brothers, the real question here is not really, are you willing to go get Benjamin to prove it to me, right? That, that's not what the, uh, Joseph is looking for. He, the real test is, are you willing to leave Simeon behind? Will you betray another brother? That's the test. Are they indeed honest men, as they, they described themselves earlier? Time will tell. Verse 21, we pick up, Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, and that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? And you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound, them, bound him before their eyes. Now, when, when bad things happen in a person's life, it can sometimes trigger a search for the reason. Not, not long ago on a Wednesday night, Pastor Ryan spoke about this a little bit in, in talking about worldviews. He pointed out that Christians do not believe in the, the Eastern view of karma. Christians don't believe in karma. Karma is the teaching that if you do good, then good things will happen to you. If you do bad, bad things will happen to you. And the Bible repeatedly shows us that this view is it's not completely wrong. Sometimes that, that works out that way, right? But it's incomplete. It's not, it's not a, a full view of reality. Right? The, the truth is, sometimes good things happen to people, even if they're a dirtbag. Some of y'all 
have your minds going straight to somebody you know or work with. And sometimes bad things happen to people who are generally kind, godly people, right? Sometimes we, we see both in Scripture and in life that God's justice plays out in this life. And sometimes God waits to judge or to reward people in eternity. The point is that we trust God and we, and we, trust, we trust him in our situation we, and we do what we know he calls us to do. Whether he extends or delays his blessings or his justice. But here in Egypt, these sons are, are starting to, to think that, that something might be falling on them. Some justice might be coming on them from, from up high. Here in Egypt, the, the accusations of the governor and three days in prison and a harsh ultimatum that has been laid before the ten sons of Jacob is causing them to take a good look at their own sin. They've come to the conclusion that they are reaping what they have sown. Twenty years after the fact, these ten men finally confess their guilt for the wicked act of human trafficking that they committed against their brother Joseph. We read of this heinous act again in Genesis chapter 37, verses 23 through 25 where it says, So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. Notice that here we're in, in 42, we're given more details about that crime. They sat and ate. That's kind of all we, we hear from chapter 37, but... But here what Reuben says is, uh, is that while, while they ate, their brother Joseph appealed for mercy, right? He, he cried out in the distress of his soul, as the scriptures say. This shows just how, how cold and hard-hearted these ten sons of, of, jo- of Jacob really are. This confession of his brothers and, and the reliving of that incident is too much for Joseph to bear while, while maintaining his identity. The brothers, speaking in their, their Canaanite dialect, have no idea that the governor can understand them. But deeply moved, Joseph excuses himself to weep, understandably. And he returns over only after composing himself. Time d- does not heal all wounds. There is no statute of limitations on sin. Whether you've grievously sinned against another person or have been grievously sinned against, hear me, it is right and proper to deal with that sin in a God, godly and, and wholesome way. Now. Today. You cannot just pretend that time and distance can wash away the sin that you've committed against another person. And if you've been truly hurt by the sin of another, you're not wrong for still grieving the wrong perpetrated against you. Now, if you're a Christian, you must forgive. You must forgive as you have been forgiven in Christ. But forgiveness doesn't mean to pretend it didn't happen or that it wasn't a big deal. And sometimes, 
Sometimes we get that wrong, even, even as Christians. Going back to the scriptures, verse 25 says, And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the, money, in the mouth of his sack. He said to his brothers, my money has been put, in my, put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this, their hearts failed them. And they turned trembling to one another, saying, what is this that God has done to us? This is a, a remarkable section of the scripture. We get an insight in verse 25 that the brothers will not be privy of. It gives us the advantage of knowing that this is all part of Joseph's plan and not an act of divine intervention. This part of Joseph's test, uh, this is all part of the test to, uh, of his brothers. He was sold, right, into slavery, and his brothers took the money and ran. Now Simeon, likewise, has been taken into custody, and they have bags of money instead. Joseph heard them confess their sin, but have they repented? Have they changed? Have they learned to fear God? And the men are sent on their way. When they stop for the evening, one of the brothers goes to his, his bag of grain to feed the animals. When he opens the bag, he finds the sack of money that was given for its purchase. And the brothers don't respond to this free bag of grain as a blessing, right? They just got out of prison under the custody of a remarkably unpleasant governor who has already demonstrated a sincere lack of trust in them. And they have to go home, convince Jacob, who likewise doesn't trust them, to send his favorite remaining son with them on the next trip. And now they aren't sure that Egypt's number two is going to be very happy with ten accused spies apparently stealing grain. Also, in Egypt, their experience in prison had reminded them of putting the boy Joseph in the pit. So here, poetically, a sack of money falls out of a bag to remind them that they sold their brother into slavery and their hearts, God's word tells us, fail them. They're confused. They are terrified. Proverbs 1.17 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. There is a fear of God now that wasn't there before. Look at their response in verse 28. What is this that God has done to us? This is important because we first met Jacob's sons uh, in, in Genesis 29 and 30 as they were born, right? And then throughout their story, right, 13 chapters go by. And right here in verse 28 is the first time that any of the older 10 sons of Jacob acknowledge God in any way. 13 chapters. See, Joseph's tests have stressed these boys out. And God is using that stress. He's using those tests to remind these men that they can't escape the eye of God. Now, they're, they're wrong in one sense, right? God didn't put that money back in their sacks. Joseph did. But Joseph didn't move their hearts. 
to feel the weight of the sin that they, uh, and, uh, the, that they have to this point for 13 chapters, for 20 years, lived with in peace. Jeremiah 17.10 says, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. See, Joseph may be the agent of this testing, but it is absolutely God testing the hearts of these men. And let's read on, starting in verse 29. When they came to Joseph, their father, in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. But we said to him, we're honest men. We've never been spies. We're 12 brothers, the sons of one father. One is no more, and the youngest is this day with our father back in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, by this I shall know you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers here with me and take the grain for the famine of your households and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me. Then I shall know that you are not spies, but honest men and I will deliver your brothers to you, and you shall trade in the land. Now, why do I read this retelling of the story that we just read? It's interesting, right? Jacob's, brother, uh, uh, Jacob's sons return to their father's household in Canaan, and they, and they retell this perilous experience. They're swashbuckling, and it's, and it's scary, and they, they, they tell the story well in some ways. But if you examine it, you'll notice that the nine sons of Jacob that show up here, they've altered some details. And they've left out some other ones. Of course, you know, they, they have no idea that, that the Lord of the land is their brother Joseph, which we know from the narration. But they also seem to hesitate to mention to Jacob how much they, they actually divulged about their, their family. They don't even mention that they were all put into prison for three days. And tell, they, they tell Jacob that Simeon was, was left with the man, not that he was shoved back in prison. It's kind of funny, right? It's good to know that the parents have always had to drag out the unpleasant details <laughs> of the story from their kids, right? That's not just a modern phenomenon. Teenage boys like to leave out some of the, the important parts of the story. The, the sons don't mention that this whole test is on the threat of death. They just mentioned that the governor's promise is that if he sees Benjamin, the family will be allowed to trade in Egypt. And finally, notice they don't, they don't mention the money in the sack. Now, we, the readers, have to wonder, have the boys learned anything? Are they going to pass the test? Have they repented? They continue with the generational sin of deceiving their father. They, they don't tell the whole truth they certainly don't mention their conviction of, of sin regarding Joseph. Surely you can understand why. They, they know they have to bring Benjamin down next time. This might not be the most opportune moment to, uh, to confess to Jacob that they sold his favorite son to Midianite traders. And now 20 years later, they're being punished by God under the threat of death from the vice pharaoh of Egypt. But then something happens that no one expects. Verse 35. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw the bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more. 
and Simeon is no more. And now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. With almost comedic timing, right, of a Hollywood movie, the boys are finished telling this half-truth story to their father, and then they open their sacks in front of Jacob, and out pours more than just Egyptian grain. Nine sacks of cold, hard Canaanite cash, and they were afraid. It's at this point that some, not all, of the pieces are starting to fall in place for Jacob. Clearly, they haven't told him the whole story, right? Why would an angry governor accusing three boys of, of spying allow this kind of oversight? And every time the boys leave their home, they seem to come back minus one brother and with a pocket full of silver that they didn't have when they left. Jacob finally says what's been on his mind for some time now. You have bereaved me, he says, not of my son Simeon, but of my children. He believes that these nine are responsible not just for Simeon's disappearance, but of Joseph's too. He, he knows, or at least suspects, that they had something to do with Joseph's disappearance. And, and now he's thinking, you want, you want me to send my baby with you? This is the last test. Jacob is the patriarch of the, family, of the covenant family of God. He's received this promise of the land and, and progeny and global blessing from the Lord. Right? And now, like Abraham, he's being tested whether or not he will send his beloved son into harm's way to, send, to save Simeon, to save the whole household of the family of God. Finishing this, this passage, it says, Then Reuben, says to his father, Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands and I will bring him back to you. But he said, my son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring my gray hairs down to Sheol with sorrow. I'm, I'm just going to say it. Reuben is a putz. Somehow, this man thinks that offering to let his father kill his two sons is going to convince Jacob that he should put Benjamin, his favorite son, in his care. But we've come to see this kind of lunacy in Reuben, this kind of dumbness in him. Earlier, when the brothers are coming to the realization that their treatment of Joseph was evil, and it was coming back upon them, Reuben took that opportunity to exalt himself over his brothers. I told you guys not to do anything with the boy. Now I'm in trouble because of what you did. Great leadership, Reuben. Great. Now he's advocating more death to the line of Jacob in order to manipulate his father into giving him what he wants. And Jacob isn't, he's not buying it. My son, Jacob says, will not go down with you. His brother is dead. He's the only one. That had to sting the other nine brothers, don't you think? Benjamin is my son, not my youngest son. My son, singular. His brother, he says. Not your brother, referring to Joseph, right? But it's, it's Benjamin's brother. He's the only one. There are 
ten boys standing there, ten men standing there. But Jacob claims that there's only one left, Benjamin. And if something happens to him, Jacob indicates, all would be lost. He might as well be dead. The ten, and and it, let's just call it a day. The ten eldest sons of Jacob are halfway through this test of a lifetime. And in order to pass the test, they need their brother Benjamin. But now the test has extended to Jacob himself. The patriarch of the world's most dysfunctional family must wrestle with his own distrust of his sons, the disastrous effects of decades of favoritism toward his children, and once again, he must wrestle with God, whether or not God will be faithful to his covenant. Will he fulfill the promises that he made to this old, bereaved man? So what? God is using Joseph's harsh testing to cause his whole family to be confronted with the destructive effects of their sin and to mercifully lead them to repentance and re redemption and ultimately reconciliation. Proverbs 17 verse 3 says, The crucible is for silver and the furnace is for gold and the Lord tests hearts. These tests have been a crucible. They're putting pressure on the hearts and souls of this family. Like a furnace, the heat of judgment is melting away at the waxy facade in which they have tried in vain to disguise themselves. And God will test us in the same way too, for our own good. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10 says, For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Listen, sin destroys families. It was true 5,000 years ago, and it's true today. Sin's effect on the family structure has been definitive since Genesis chapters 3 and 4, when the first husband and wife began to drag each other down and to accuse each other, and when jealousy and resentment between brothers led to cold This brokenness in the family leads to further dysfunction, emotional pain, and many of you know this, not just from reading the Bible, but from your own experience, from your own upbringing, from your own observation. Jacob's sin of favoritism and passivity within his house is easily traced to the fraternal conflicts that we've seen in these few chapters. And the brother's brazen attitude towards sin has led to further breakdown in the family. Reuben had slept with one of his father's concubines. Simeon and Levi had slaughtered an entire clan of people over the rape of their sister Dinah. Judah disregarded the cultural value of leveret marriage and had completely abandoned his own daughter-in-law before committing his own sexual sin, kind of a pseudo-incest, and then being a complete hypocrite about it. All ten, all ten of these brothers have plotted to murder and then to traffic their own brother Jacob, excuse me, Joseph, their own brother Joseph, out of jealousy. They sold him and lied to their father about it for 20 years. Sin has destroyed the family of Jacob. And if the family of Jacob is thus destroyed, how can the covenant family of God go on to prosper and bless the rest of the world? 
Here's the good news. God, the Holy Spirit, uses the consequences of our actions and the hardships we experience to confront our sin and convict us of our guilt. And then, by his free grace, he orchestrates reconciliation, first with himself and then with our fellow man, by absorbing the guilt of our sin on the cross of Jesus and imputing on us his own righteousness. He changes our hearts, leading us to repent and moving us to seek and to offer forgiveness, thereby restoring our relationship with him and giving us the hope of reconciliation with our neighbors and, yes, even our family members. This is only in its beginning stages here in Genesis 42. The tests laid out by Joseph have confronted his brother and his father with their sin and its effects. The brothers have come to grips with the reality that they have sinned against Joseph and their father and the God of their fathers. And for the first time, we see them regret their sins and their jealousy, their cruelty, and their deception. Will they repent? Will they seek forgiveness from their father, from Joseph, from God? Time will tell. At the end of chapter 42, the focus is back on Jacob. The family's dysfunction is chiefly rooted in his own sins. Will all this that has come against him finally lead him to trust in the Lord? Will it cause him to repent of his failures as a father to love all of his children? All of his children? Time will tell. What about you? What sins have you left unconfessed in your marriage, in your family, in your close relationships? Is there some beef that you've left unresolved, maybe for weeks or months, years? Can you see that the dysfunction, that these unresolved sins between you and other family members has wrought on your households, your lives? your own spiritual well-being? Christ has come to bring reconciliation. Turn to him. Turn to him and be free from your guilt and your shame. Turn to him in faith and taste the goodness of his forgiveness, his restoration, his love. Turn to him and find healing and comfort and courage to reach out and make peace with those from whom you are estranged. Because Christian, God himself has tasted death to bridge the chasm that separated us from him in peace. God has tasted death in Christ to make peace with you. As, as Paul writes in Romans 5, he says, For if we were enemies, if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, Shall we be saved by his life? Let us take that peace and pass it among, among our friends and our families today and every day. Amen. Pray with me. Our Father God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the good news of salvation through Christ. Thank you for being the, the one who took the initiative, to who... who who came from heaven to reconcile sinners to yourself.
Lord, we have made a mess of things. We have, we have family members. We have loved ones. We have people that, that we haven't talked to in, in a long time. We pray, Lord, that you would bring restoration and healing in, in all of those relationships. Oh, God, have mercy on us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.